2: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. With Passover this weekend and Holocaust Remembrance Day coming up, I'll talk to a conductor who says we lost a great part of the 20th century classical music heritage when the Nazis suppressed the work of Jewish musicians. And as if the science on vitamin D wasn't confusing enough, the latest studies claim that most of us need 10 times more than we're normally getting. Truth or fiction? I'll catch up with Andre Picard, medical writer from The Globe and Mail. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. While career hopping is a trend most often associated with millennials, a new study finds it was nearly as common for Zoomers. According to recent data from America's Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average Zoomer changed jobs nearly a dozen times between the ages of 18 and 48. The most rapid job hopping happened when Zoomers were just starting out, switching an average of six times between the ages of 18 and 24. By their 40s, most Zoomers had found their calling and were only changing jobs an average of twice a decade. Meanwhile, a new report finds age discrimination is a factor in the U.S. labor market. According to the study by the AARP, American Zoomers who have lost their jobs are finding the road to re-employment a rocky one. A substantial number of older workers have been forced to take on positions below their skill level, education, or pay grade. And half who are unemployed at some point in the last five years are still without work or have dropped out of the labor force completely. It's an image that went viral and sparked a trend. Call it an extreme, multi-generational photo. It shows 101-year-old Rosa Camfield holding her two-week-old great-granddaughter, Kaylee Rowland. After being posted online by Kaylee's mother, the picture was quickly shared around the world and triggered a beautiful response, people posting their own touching photographs of great-grandparents and great-grandchildren together. Thank uh-huh. That's from a YouTube video Julian Lennon posted in honor of his late mother, Cynthia Lennon. She was the first wife of Beatle John Lennon. They met in a Liverpool art school before the Beatles were famous. They married in the summer of 1962 after they found out Cynthia was pregnant with Julian. Their marriage lasted only six years. They divorced in 1968 when John started his affair with Yoko Ono. Cynthia became Julian's primary caregiver, raising him on her own. She passed away this week from cancer. She was 75. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. What is the role vitamin D plays in maintaining our health, and how much do we need? The science on the sunshine vitamin keeps changing amid some spectacular claims from vitamin D advocates. Recently, a private foundation ran an ad campaign claiming that vitamin D deficiency causes thousands of premature deaths and costs the health system $20 billion a year. To clear up the confusion, I talked with Andre Picard, one of Canada's top health and public policy writers.
3: For a long time, their science was pretty excited about vitamin D. There's some pretty promising research. But when you do dig a little deeper, you realize, well, it's intermingled with a lot of other things. So people who have high vitamin D levels, people who take vitamin D are healthy. But the question is, is it because of their vitamin D supplements? And what the research has shown over the years was... Probably not. And initially we thought that was the reason. So, you know, science is kind of self-correcting over time.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, the corollary was that they found that a lot of people who were sick had low vitamin D levels. So the thinking for a while was that if you boost that up, you won't get sick or you'll get healthy.
3: Yeah, so we have to be careful about correlation and causation. So we, there's lots of correlation. So why are sick people taking more vitamin D? Well, often because they're sick. Uh, why do people who are really healthy take supplements? Well, because they do every all kinds of other healthy things. So it's not uh, not necessarily because you do it that you have good outcomes. It's uh, uh, healthy people tend to do healthy things. Is the is the bottom line?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other side of that, uh, the fact that a lot of unhealthy people or sick people have low vitamin D levels, so at first the thought was that that caused it, but then there was a shift saying, well, it's it's a symptom of being sick, And not a cause.
3: Exactly. So, you know, we know that low vitamin D levels cause one thing. It causes rickets, mostly in children. And that's really serious. That's a bone disease. Beyond that, uh, yeah, all kinds of reasons you can have low vitamin D levels. If you're sick, you don't get outside much. Vitamin D is the sunshine vitamin. You get it mostly from the sun. Uh, If you have anemia, it's going to be low along with your iron. So you're right. There's all kinds of reasons this can happen. And it's not because of the low levels that you have the illness. It's more the other way around.
2: Okay. So so for a while, we were hoping that this would really help us, though we were a little disappointed. And suddenly, uh, just in the last few weeks, there, there have been some new incredible claims. And these come out of studies which claim that there was a calculation error in how much vitamin D we need.
3: Yeah, so these are largely sort of debates of mathematicians. So they're they're complicated, and I I can't pretend to know all the details. But essentially, there's something called the uh, the, the daily allowance that we should have for to be healthy of vitamins. Uh, in Canada, we say the the RDA, the daily allowance of vitamin D is around 800 international units. That's the accepted practice in Canada, the U.S. Uh, there are groups that are claiming now it should be about ten times that. Wow. Now why? Because they have these debates about how the rDA was calculated did were the right populations used? Did we use an average as opposed to a mean so again, mathematical issues and i I think the bottom line here is we don't have any evidence that taking these megadoses, eight or 10,000 units, actually does any benefit. In fact, there's a lot of new research coming out that, that there's harm from doing too much, and especially for older people. In older people, if you have too much vitamin D, you can have anemia, you can have kidney stones as a result. So there, there are downsides to doing this. So the only people who should take high doses are people with diagnosed bone diseases. And we make the mistake often that if something's good. We know vitamin D is good. In fact, it's an essential nutrient. Uh, because it's good doesn't mean that more is better. We have to have the correct dosage, not too little, not too much.
2: They were saying how many premature deaths because of a lack of vitamin D? Uh,
3: 37,000.
2: Wow. I mean, it's 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 really quite something. I, I think uh, one of my doctors said it best when I asked him about vitamin D. He said it's like a religion.
3: Uh, it is, you know, like a lot of... Uh, uh, claims people are looking for miracles and they latch on to them. Uh, people depend a lot on anecdote. Uh, the, the founder of this foundation takes 12,000 units of vitamin D a day and he's very healthy. Therefore, he assumes that vitamin D is the reason. Uh, probably other, a lot of other reasons he's healthy. So we, we have to be careful. But, you know, this attraction to miracles and something's going to be a magic potion, we, we like that idea. But in, in real life, it doesn't really exist, unfortunately.
2: Now, when, when people start to believe these claims, it's it's you you can't necessarily change their minds just with facts
3: oh absolutely not Uh, you know it is really people are really passionate about it and again I think it's really well-intentioned they really believe it it works for them Uh, but you uh, the danger comes in not if you do this you know if you take mega doses of vitamin D there probably won't be a lot of harm unless you really overdo it you get kidney stones the danger is if you do it instead of other stuff so we have people who take uh, potions like homeopathy sometimes vitamin D and say I'm going to do that instead of my cancer treatment when I have cancer that's when it's dangerous most of the time you know to be honest people are just wasting their money there's not a lot of harm in that uh, except to the individual's wallet so uh, you know I don't get over overly worried about it. I I get worried when people treat serious conditions with bogus treatment.
2: Just to wrap things up, uh, what are you telling people? Because, you know, actually, even people here on our air were insisting that this had to be right.
3: Well, you know, I don't get overly worked up about any one study. I I think if you go out for a walk every day, get some sunshine, you eat a healthy diet, you probably don't need a supplement unless you're a a pregnant woman or you're a newborn baby who should get vitamin D drops, or if you have a a serious uh, bone disease. Other than that, you know, this is probably not really relevant to most people.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm. Andre Picard, thanks so much for that. Well, thank you. Andre Picard is one of Canada's top health and public policy writers. I'm Libby Zneimer and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. With Passover this weekend and Holocaust Remembrance Day coming up, a prominent conductor wants us to remember our lost musical heritage. That's next. That piece is part of our lost musical heritage. Conductor James Conlon says when the Nazis suppressed the work of mostly Jewish musicians and others who opposed them, we lost a significant part of the 20th century classical canon. He's making it his mission to recover it. James Conlon dropped by our studios when he was in town to guest conduct the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. We're talking... Anywhere
0: from thirty to fifty composers of, of significance we 're talking about thousands of works in the end. If you consider that many of those composers wrote hundred opus numbers you're, you're getting up you 're getting up into the thousands so the The necessity to do this, I think, is based on three things to some degree, I think we have a moral necessity or a moral mandate to undo injustices. And this is an injustice that we can we can minimize. The injustice of the what they suffered in their lifetime can't be changed, but I think we can do the one thing that they would have appreciated the most, which is to play their music. Um, there's a historical perspective. We've written the history of the 20th century classical music with an enormous hole in it. I mean, many of these people are not even discussed or not even considered. And I think the most important thing is about Simply artistic. there's so much good music, and we're talking about orchestral music, we're talking about chamber music, we're talking about solo piano uh, music, we're talking about song, literature. We're talking about just about everything that we associate with classical music.
2: And how did uh, contemporary classical music change because of this the absence of this body of work?
0: The composers were banned a lot of them during you know during at least for you know seven, eight, nine years. But more important than that, there was so many musicians. Had uh, died or were displaced, that the natural passage from generation to generation had been interrupted. There were many different viewpoints. These composers are not all similar to each other. In fact, some of them were antagonists. The big issue at the time in in the avant-garde was: Are you going to go the direction of uh, a marriage or, an, or or a chemistry with popular music? In other words, like Brecht and Weill. I mean, are you going to go to that direction or uh, are you going to st- stay tonal to some degree or other, or are you going to go, what was radical at the time was Schoenberg and the 12-tone uh, system? Now, it just so happened that after the war, the there was enormous support in Ameri- American-occupied Germany for 12-tone music. And so, they kept their dominance along with the new electronic music, and what was what had just been written somehow was just forgotten about. You don't have the multiplicity of voices that you would have had had the Nazis not interfered.
2: I'm looking at this list, and there are people on it who are played. You know, Korgel and Kurt Vile.
0: Yes, well, they're interesting examples because we know them because they came. Uh, they came across the Atlantic, and they adapted Korgel to Hollywood. In fact, he's really the great, great, great founder of the high level movie music, and Vial, of course, it was very successful on Broadway. We know that music, but we don't generally know the music that was written before they left. There's a ve- there's very interesting German Vial, and there's the young Corngold is, to me, the most extraordinary, uh, extraordinary music that we don't play.
2: And it's very different from the Corngold we know? Well, sure. Uh,
0: I mean, you can recognize it. You can, I mean, you can see the roots. Uh, you can see where it came from. But, of course, he was adapting, and he was adapting to a new art form or, you know, the movie if you go listen to what he wrote he was a child prodigy in his teens it's absolutely it's absolutely astonishing and it's all there it's all there to be played but it's just not known
2: and how did you come to this? Uh, I'm assuming that you're not Jewish. Your name is Conlon. Uh, <laughs> <That's what, laughs>
0: well, everybody asks me that. I'm not Jewish. Yes, my name's Conlon, and that's an Irish name. You know, uh, I was brought up Roman Catholic, so it has nothing to do with that. And nor should it, by the way. You know that uh, you don't have to be Jewish to be horrified by what went on in Germany. In the end, this is about reintegrating a part of the patrimony of classical music that we have all received that was ripped out of its place by a tyrannical regime. And it is an ongoing lesson to how easy it is to destroy and how difficult it is to create and how to bring things back. So much was lost because of a regime uh, that was basically there for 12 or 13 years, and yet uh, the damage is still done. I mean, the point the, the point of particularly of the Nazis was to, uh, was to get rid of their political enemies. That's why some of the non-Jewish composers were persecuted, but basically to stifle the Jewish voice. And to the degree that this is still the case, that a lot of those voices are not heard or not sufficiently known— then that's a posthumous victory that 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 regime still enjoys. And I I reject the, the idea that we should accept that.
2: Okay. James Conlon, thanks so much.
0: You're very welcome.
2: I've been speaking with conductor James Conlon. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. We'll take a quick break and then return and celebrate Doris Day's 91st birthday. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world.
1: Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, renowned opera singer Renee Fleming stars in Living on Love. It's a comedy about a famous opera singer who hires a handsome young man to write her autobiography. Living on Love is at the Long Acre Theater. In Chicago, Ireland crossroads of Art and design 1690 to 1840 is a new exhibition at the Art Institute it explores the rich and complex art and culture of Ireland during the 18th century. The Carol King musical Beautiful has opened in London's West End. That's Carol herself singing with the cast on Broadway. The London production is at the Aldwych Theatre. And if you're traveling in Germany, a comedy show all in English tells you how to become a Berliner in one hour. The show is at the Sternberg Theatre. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, the iconic
2: musician and movie star Doris Day celebrated her 91st birthday. She became one of the world's first pop stars after being noticed for her now-famous recording of Sentimental Journey. Over her musical career, she released 29 albums, spent 460 weeks in the top 40 charts, and eventually became one of America's most beloved entertainers. Her film career was equally impressive. Before retiring from acting in 1973, she starred in almost 40 movies, including timeless hits like Pillow Talk, That Touch of Mink, Calamity Jane, and Love Me or Leave Me. Right now, we'll hear Doris Day sing one of her signature songs. Here is When I Fall in Love. That was Doris Day with When I Fall in Love. She was the first artist to make it a hit back in the year 1952. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive Producer, Moses Nymer, Produced by Paul Thomas. Program Director, John Bandrio.
1: This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn
1: Lightstone Reads.